3: I'm often disappointed in biographies because biographers write about their subjects' sex lives um, in such a remote way as if the biographers have never met anyone who's had sex before.
4: That was Richard Davenport Hines talking about one of his aims in writing a new biography of John Maynard Keynes.
5: Crime and punishment and justice, society, families, uh, uh, children, sex. um, You know, you, you name a topic of interest
4: and the Greeks dealt with it. And that was Peter Jones discussing the parallels between ancient Greek culture and today's society. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our final podcast of February 2015. I'm Rob Attart, the editor of BBC History magazine. John Maynard Keynes is best known today as the economist whose theories were hugely important to Britain in the Second World War, and who went on to influence financial and political thought for many decades. But what do we know of the man behind the theories, that's the question that inspired Richard davenport hiness new biography, Universal Man, The Seven Lives of John Maynard Keynes. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, met up with Richard to find out more. Firstly, what
6: inspired this book and its structure,
3: I suppose? Uh, I like writing biographies of people whom I admire and whom I think other people should admire. I can't think of anything more depressing than writing a, a book about someone whom you think is or... Uh, dispiriting or not not worth emulating uh, and Keynes is someone who I really think is worth emulating as a person because he has uh, he's such a generous man and he 's so benevolent and so considerate to other people and yet he 's really ruthless with his time so far from being a time waster uh, and such a such a authoritative person and I always find ex- intelligence is a, a very exciting subject to write about. Mm. Uh, he's super intelligent obviously um, and it's um, I, I sort of hoped it would be infectious. Um, and in terms of the title what led you to choose the title The Universal Man? Lots of people had said to me through the years that they really wanted to know about Cain's, uh as a human being and as a cultural force and that they had found the economics, which of course is completely basic to why we think of him, nevertheless they found that economics really quite difficult to follow in detail, really quite off-putting. Mm. Uh, and I wanted to write a book in which the economics wouldn't
6: send readers into a coma <laughs> OK, <laughs> yes, I mean that's something that really comes through, is him, as the man
3: Yes, and I was going to say, the way to approach Keynes um, uh, w- without sending readers into a coma was to look at the seven lives that, that I identified that were really very interesting uh, that, 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 that he lived through um, and concentrated on those with the economics on the edge of all of them. And it's particularly because, there's a thing that people uh, forget, but Englishmen of a certain class and background of his generation, and indeed even of mine, they were all brought up to believe that an intelligent person compartmentalises their life. They don't mix all their friends up together. They don't mix all their lovers up together. Uh, They keep business, uh, work, public life, private life, all that really separately compartmentalised. And I was very interested to show how Keynes did this. It's absolutely crucial to how he achieves so
6: much that he keeps things in different cupboards. Um, And that's what made him universal. So you think his way of doing that mentally is something that really led to his success? Yes, he's he's really inspiring because he does so
3: much. Um, um, Even when he has got... As a result of a terrible infection, he develops heart disease that eventually kills him. He works so hard. Um, he w- works 14-hour days and he's working as a man who uh, is chairman of a major publishing company, publishing a magazine. He's um, not merely teaching economics at Cambridge, but he's one of the most important people uh, in the administration and finance of his college. He's... Um, writing books, he's writing articles of his own. He's a patron of the arts, and he runs. He, he's essentially the founder of the Arts Council of Great Britain. So he does all these uh, things because he thinks it will be a, an absolute sin not to use all your time always
6: for the best, always. Mm. He does so much stuff. Even one of those things would be huge for another yes. person, but yes. he does all of the things all yes. the time. It's incredible. Heading back to um, the early part of his life, mm. what do we know about his childhood and how it informed his later life? He um, he came from... Um,
3: his, his family were... Uh, he, he came from a family that had managed to make really quite a lot of money in the Victorian period, um, rather enchantingly by... Um, one a flower nursery in Salisbury and breeding, hybridising wonderful new flowers. His his grandfather left really a lot of money, having invested in railways too. And his and Keynes's father um, invested cautiously but very well. It was a pretty rich man. The family had been non-conformists in religion, Baptists, and excluded from all the power hierarchy of England. Um, And that changed in the 1880s. And so they're a really good example of the flexibility and adaptability of the English class system. Mm. Um, They're a family who came from nowhere and made their mark in all sorts of ways um, in two generations and made a lot of money too. A key thing about his upbringing is that his father was fusspot. His father was very pessimistic, anxious uh, 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 nervy man of, of great ability uh, who never did much with his life. Uh, his father was an economist too but um, his, his nervous pessimism, his depressive pessimism was something that Maynard Keynes completely reacted against. So the other key thing about Keynes is his Optimism, even in the worst adversity, he can always see something a positive way forward. Mm. And his and this optimism is is the great thing that he gets from reacting against his father, to whom he's otherwise devoted. And Keynes thinks um, optimism is the only intelligent way to go through life. He thinks pessimism is
6: terribly, terribly stupid. Mm. Um, and then moving ahead slightly to his his school days, yeah. um, what do we learn about him as a pupil? Um, and again, how did that inform his later career?
3: His, his, because his father was a very intelligent underachiever, his father lived vicariously through his, his all three of his children. There were two sons and a daughter who were all sent to the best possible schools that they could go to, including the daughter, which was very rare at that time. Mm. Uh, Kane's was a prodigious and witty child from very from 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 the time he was a toddler, and he, at the age of thirteen, he gets a scholarship to Eton. Both his parents go along with him to the scholarship exams and must have made a terrible nuisance of themselves with their pushiness and their nervousness. Um, and he gets into Eton as a scholar, almost the top scholar, and at Eton. Um, wins, oh, nearly two dozen different prizes. He has hundreds of books by the time he leaves Eton, most of which he's got uh, as prizes uh, for because he's extremely intellectually gifted at Cambridge um, and uh, extremely intellectually gifted at Eton mm. and um, and He gets out of Eton uh, a sense, he's not a very political person, but he likes to solve problems and he likes to manage difficulties. And we're already at Eton, he's always being asked by other boys to. Organise school events and manage things, mm. um, and he's always been put on school committees. And, and he says to his father, "And I find very quickly once I'm on a committee, I have to shoulder all the work." He's just much more competent than most people. Mm. Yes. Uh, the other thing to say about him is that he, he his his parents think and get, and imbue him with the idea that he's physically repulsive that he's ugly. He isn't really much of a looker, but the ugliness is overstated, but he really loathes his own physical appearance and uh, compensates for that, I think, mm-hmm. not only by being super intelligent, but also he develops the most tremendous flirtatious charm. Mm. He's hu- um, he's a huge flirt in the way that some ugly men are. Um, and... Um, impresses his personality on people and charms them and gets them
6: on his side and he's, he, he starts doing that at school. Mm. This whole aspect of his charming kind of flirtatious character is something that really interests me. How did he go about developing this? Because it comes across so strongly throughout the rest of his life I think.
3: Yeah well puppy is he, uh, he's innately very funny. Mm. He's, a very, he's he, as, a very, as a small child he's Always laughing, and is one of those little children that's always delivered saying really witty things, playing with words, and he remains like that and his uh, he looks at people while he's talking to them, he listens to them mm. um, he teases them he likes being teased and he teases and he he has a very strong character which he projects on people and which and which people Tend to like,
6: mm.
3: and it's um very important, I think, to his character, as I say in the book that um he all his all his sex life from school until his late thirties is with other men and boys, and he uh once he starts. Once he starts li- living, particularly once he starts living in London and picking up um, boys and men on the streets or in clubs or saunas, uh, he becomes... He's tremendously... He, he's tremendous He suffers fools gladly. He's really, really patient with much more slow-witted people, partly because he's such a flirt. Um, and uh, that's a tremendous help to him in dealing with people. He's mm. not brusque, and, and then when he, after he gets married and, and, and finally settled in, a, in his forties and stops flirting with younger men and the rest of it, he does become unquestionably uh, more impatient, brusque, okay. uh, even, uh, even irritable, and certainly doesn't suffer through. his He can be very snubbing, mm. and, that, and that changes in his life.
6: We've talked about his sex life a couple of times. How did he view his own sexuality? A
3: unique thing happened to me when I gave the text of my book to the publisher and, and they said, publishers never normally say this, uh, there's an awful lot of sex in this book um, and they, nor- they normally want more. And that's because Keynes quite deliberately um, preserved uh, letter, incriminating letters... Um, from the Edwardian period and later from his various boyfriends, because he quite clearly wanted one day the sexual underworld of gay young men in Edwardian England to be chronicled. Mm. And one can put together one can put one can um, put together his sex life at the age of about six or seven until he's a very ill, dying uh, man. And um, this is because he preserved the material for it quite deliberately, for it to be used. And it's 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 possible to have one of the most complete uh, senses of someone's sex life as a, sub- a major figure uh, that I know of. And I, I thought this was worth doing because I'm always I'm always dis- I'm always dis- I'm often disappointed in biographies because biographers write about their subject's sex life. Um, in such a remote way, as if the Bulgars have never met anyone who's had sex before. It's also unrealistic. Mm. And I've tried to I've, I've I've tried to show the different types of partner he had and where he met them and why and what um, uh, what they signify. What was the significance of these different relationships?
6: Mm. Overall, what do you think the significance was? Because he seems almost to have actively made sure that these things happened to him, that he sought out these kind of experiences. He was a member of a, uh, of a Cambridge discussion group which has become
3: very famous called the Apostles, which met, met once a week to discuss really quite high philosophical issues. He's called Matters of Aesthetics. Um, but many of the younger members there saw themselves, in their own words, as immoralists, they set out to reject double standards and hypocrisy and obsolete rules that they identified with the Victorians. They talked about this a huge amount. They were always talking about, they were always talking about sex. Most of them, as, uh, many of them were actually still virgins, but they talked about sex all the time. Keynes went out... And as a young man, um, as a, um, living in London and living in Cambridge, he went out and practised exactly what they'd been talking about um, and broke rules. He, he broke... There was a great... Um, there was a great, huge disapproval, in fact, until the 1960s or 1970s, in sex-across-class boundaries... Um, it was thought... Uh, terror, you know, one sees this in all the major trials of gay men, uh, when, uh, if they were of different classes. It's a tremendous issue with the judiciary and with the state. And Keynes goes
6: out and has all sorts of uh, working-class boyfriends. And this. Given this breadth of experience, how did he end up becoming a public official, if you like, and what tensions existed when he had this role? Well, his family were very keen for
3: him go into the civil service um, and become one of England's ruler, administrative rulers and he came second in the civil service exam of his year um, and went into the India office what he found really frustrating was having to hold the official line on issues and not lie remotely lie but um, tell half-truths or lazy versions of events uh, he had a tremendous respect for truth and accuracy and was really offended by imprecision. So he is a civil servant for a couple of years at the Indian off- India office. Then manages managed to get back to Cambridge where he starts to teach economics even though the sum total of his training as an economist was two months weeding a couple of summers earlier. He hadn't trained as an economist at all. Um, and then um he's working in Cambridge in nineteen fourteen and um when war when when war they unexpectedly breaks out and the joint the, the banks go into the most tremendous panic when the war breaks out and try to force the government in a panic to take all sorts of financial panic measures to preserve the bank's position and one of the treasury officials who knows Keynes sends him a letter saying would you like to come up in london and give us some advice and he is hurtles up to london on a bank holiday sunday in a sidecar uh, of a motorbike and goes to the treasury and um as a as a man not yet 30 completely uh Takes ch- gives the chance of the exchequer the courage to withstand the bankers, saves the, the British Empire from the most terrible financial collapse in the city of London at the very outbreak of the war. And he subsequently is brought into the Treasury as a, temp- as a wartime official. And by the end of the war, there are only two or three people more senior in the treasury hierarchy than he is in 1918 although he's not yet 40 mm. um, and he's a very impo- He's extremely important in the First World War in all the financial transactions between um, in all the financial transactions between the allies and particularly in dealing with a Amer- huge amount
6: of American money mm. Just for people who might not know heading back to that moment what was it that he persuaded the Chancellor to to do or to not do um, I suppose um, the, the, the the
3: the the banks had been creating a, a, a run by refusing to give out gold and silver coin, which was causing a panic, and they wanted the Bank Charter Act, which was. The, the, the legislation that governed the whole banking system to be suspended for the war, which would have caused the most tremendous crisis of confidence, um, and they were—they essentially wanted to annul huge amounts of contractual undertakings and informal agreements that existed um, in a complete funk. Mm. They—they—they were—they—they—they they, they, they were terrified of going broke. And Keynes was um, involved in the first
6: British government bailouts of banks and City of London finance houses. And so by the end of the war, he's this hugely influential figure. We have touched on this a couple of times throughout so far, but exactly how did he end up being quite so influential? Keynes
3: became influential in the First World War as a complete political outsider through a number of different routes. One of them is to do with his, his personal charm mm. because he's bought into Whitehall by uh, and then uh, and by one liberal politician, sponsored, introduced to lots of other liberal politicians and becomes really quite popular with the family of Prime Minister Asquith with all sorts of other liberal leaders and then even turns out to get on incredibly well with uh, uh, the... the, the arch-Tory conservative leader, Bona Law, with whom he has to work very closely, who is always considered a very narrow, dour, uh, philistine Scotsman. And, in fact, they get on tremendously well and manage to amuse. what they like and trust one another very well. So a lot of it is down to extraordinary personal gifts. It's also the fact that he works terribly hard mm. and ha- has this amazing... Um, Numeracy, so that he looks at numbers. He gets down to the nitty gritty of figures and statistics. In fact, he's a pioneer in England of 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 real statistical analysis in government, and he changes the whole way. Chances later, the whole way that Chancellor's extend construct their budgets by looking by looking at the figures. So he works really hard at figures in a way that's without precedent. And he, and he therefore and he's also, I should say, he's always, he loves playing cards. He's a real gambler um, at, 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 at Bridge and other, at, at other card games and likes going to casinos. So he's very good on reading the market, on markets. Most civil servants don't understand markets at all, market forces. And he's someone because he, he goes to casinos and stuff. Um, and has flutters all the time. Uh, he's very good on the on the probability of what's going to happen. Hmm. Um, and he, he but there's also an element of luck. He's 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 in the treasury at a time when new jobs are being created, which is why he's has this extraordinary time of being in charge of all the uh, financial interdebtedness
6: of the allies and dealing with the Americans. If we can perhaps take something away from. Keynes' life as him symbolising something, or take a lesson away from his work and his kind of career, what would that be? Oh,
3: um, his. Uh, the, the great lessons of Keynes are generosity of spirit, and that it's much more intelligent and constructive to take an, an optimistic course, uh, that um, being angry. And feeling defeated, and therefore being mean-spirited um, and aggressive, uh, doesn't work very well. Doesn't last, um, and, it, and it leads to economic decline, and it leads to personal degradation. Um, that's 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 uh, that's that's his that's his lesson.
4: That was Richard Davenport-Hines. Universal Man, The Seven Lives of John Maynard Keynes will be published on the 12th of March by William Collins in both the UK and the US. And you can read more from Richard and Matt in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's edition, we explore what life was like in Roman Britain, we discover how Henry VIII nearly had a seventh wife and we show how fashion survived during the Second World War.
2: with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P history extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
4: Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarland.
0: Rats may not have been to blame for spreading the plague, a new study suggests. According to scientists at the University of Oslo, numerous outbreaks of the bubonic plague across Europe in the mid-14th century can instead be traced back to gerbils from Asia. It had been thought that black rats were responsible for allowing the plague to establish in Europe, with new outbreaks occurring when fleas jumped from infected rodents to humans. Professor Niels Christian Stenseth from the University of Oslo said, quote, If we're right, we'll have to rewrite that part of history. In a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the team concluded that the disease had little to do with rats in European cities, but was instead imported numerous times over the 400 years of the pandemic from Asia where weather conditions cause the plague-carrying rodent, the giant gerbil, to thrive. In other news, 79% of British adults are, quote, aware of Magna Carta, double the 23-country average level of recognition of 39%, a survey has revealed. Carried out by Ipsos Mori for the Magna Carta 800th Commemoration Committee, the survey showed just 6% of adults in France say they are aware of Magna Carta, lower than the other countries including Poland, 10%, China, 18%, and South Korea, 21%. Sir Robert Worcester, chair of the committee, welcomed the high level of recognition in Britain of Magna Carta, but expressed concern that, quote, only two-thirds of those under 35 are aware of Magna Carta, which reflects badly on the recent decades of the education syllabus in state schools. Hopefully, this year of coverage of the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta will raise this level of awareness among young people. Meanwhile, a 94-year-old man has been charged with 3,681 counts of accessory to murder in Germany over allegations he served at Auschwitz. Prosecutors said the defendant, who has not been named, was a former SS sergeant who acted as a medical officer at the Nazi death camp in 1944. It is alleged that in his role as medical officer, he helped the camp function and could therefore be linked to deaths that occurred during this period of service from the 15th of August to the 14th of September 1944, BBC News reports. If found guilty, he could face a jail term ranging from 3 to 15 years.
4: Thank you, Emma. Now, who do you think are the historical figures that are most relevant to us today? We're conducting an online poll to find out the answer to that question and would love you to take part. All you need to do is visit historyextra.com forward slash historyhot100 and vote for the people you think matter most in 2015. And if you leave comments after your choices, they might be published in the magazine. We'll be announcing the results in a couple of months. The ancient Greeks developed our languages, extensively shaped how we see the world around us, and influenced our social and political thought. But how much do we really know about them? And in what ways are our perceptions of their culture incorrect? Those are just some of the questions investigated by classical historian Peter Jones in his new book, Eureka, everything you ever wanted to know about the ancient Greeks, but were afraid to ask. Well, Matt Elton was lucky enough to put his own questions to Peter recently, and here's what they had to say.
6: What first inspired you to write this book?
5: Well, it's uh, just to be sanctimonious for a for a, for a minute. I mean, I, I I was my education was entirely paid for by the state. So, so so advanced am I in years, and and you know you you just feel it, it's it's payback time. I, I loved every minute of my education. Uh, I found the ancient world absolutely fascinating. I went into teaching uh, in schools and then in in university, so it provided me with a with a job, and. When I talk to people about the ancient world and people who know nothing about it they they find it very, very stimulating um there are a lot, There are a lot of um old gentlemen's clubs in the northeast I live in Newcastle uh, from here to Whitley Bay, colorcoats Tynemouth, there are hundreds of them, and I regularly give lectures and when you when you talk about the ancient Greeks to them, say about the ancient Greeks inventing democracy in, the, in, in fifth fifth century sixth century b c uh, and you you point out that. All decisions were made by Greek citizens over the age of 18, meeting in assembly about once a week, which all our politicians make on our behalf without consulting us. People think, well, that's very interesting. I wonder if we could do that today. When I tell them that everyone who, who, who put the decisions of the assembly into effect was not a professional civil servant or bureaucrat, but was a private citizen – Who'd volunteered to do the job for a year, and when I tell them that those who wanted to be, let's say, Secretary Secretary of State for Ag and Fish, they put their name into a hat, and to simplify, their name came out, they were Secretary of State for Ag and Fish, they begin to think, Well, <laughs> could that really work in Britain? I mean imagine I mean imagine the consequences. But then you point out that that these people are seriously accountable. And at the end of the year in office, their their record would be reviewed by the assembly, the people in assembly. And if they didn't like what you'd done, they could fine you, they could exile you, or they could execute you. Think what happens to our failed MPs. Now all that, you know, but people find absolutely fascinating. So so that's what I'm all about in, in writing this book. It's trying to, Open up this world to people who know nothing about it in in a in a way that they will understand.
6: So, people who might not know, uh, what time period and geographical region does this book cover?
5: Well, it covers uh, the, basically the Greek mainland, uh, but also Greeks living all around the Mediterranean. They lived around the Mediterranean, as Plato said, like frogs round, frogs round a pond, from about fourteen hundred BC through to, well, through majorly to the 4th century BC, but we do dribble on, as it were, to the 1st century BC, by which time the the Greek world had been essentially taken over by the Romans.
6: So that's a huge range of kind of geographical and time um, coverage. How hard was it to choose what to include and what to leave out?
5: Well, it is very, very difficult indeed with the Greeks. Uh, With the Romans, it's easy because Rome you know ran the show for between the 7, 8, 800 BC and 5th century nearly 1500 years it, it is the center of the Mediterranean world so so you've got a continuous story there with with the Greeks it's very very it's very very different you know we all think of Athens but Athens was only as it were a central power a serious central power for 180 200 years and the action takes place all over that world, so it's it's a much more diffuse story. We begin in 1400 BC with the um, Minoan Cretans and Mycenaean Greeks. Um, we go into the Dark Ages. Who know? Who knows what happens there? And the most important site emerging from the Dark Ages being Olympia, a site of the Olympic Games, which is in the in the Peloponnese in Greece, in the, in the north northwest of the northwest of the Peloponnese in southern Greece, um, we then moved on to a colonial period when Greeks from, say, Euboea and Corinth, and not Athens so much, are sending Greeks all over the Mediterranean. And then we get to the big period, as it were, the classical period, fifth to fourth centuries BC, when Athens and Sparta and other Greek states too, like Thebes and Corinth, are battling it out for power. That's the period that people tend to know about, and then that whole world collapses when uh, Philip of Macedon, in the north of Greece, um, decides to take over Greece, and he comes down south with his delightful son Alexander the Great. Uh, they uh, they conquer the Greek world, and from then on, democracy ends, and the Greek world is not is not what it was, um, but in a sense, it. It becomes even more important in a sense because, of course, the Romans take over and they are utterly fascinated by the Greek achievement, fascinated by it. And it's thanks to the Romans that we know so much as so much all that we do about the Greeks. If the Romans hadn't been there, probably the Greek achievement would have died in the sands.
6: Are there any particular characters across this whole story that you particularly warmed to? Ha!
5: good question. Um. Well, I think everyone warms to Herodotus, uh, the inventor of history. Greeks invented an enormous number of things. Uh, Democracy, as we've said. Philosophy. They invented tragedy and comedy, as far as the West is concerned, of course. And history was one of them. And Herodotus invented history in two senses. That first of all, for the most part, though not entirely, he cut the gods out of the equation. He cut the gods out of explanatory forces in human history, in the human past. If you believe the past was controlled by gods, you'll you'll never be able to understand it. You'll never be able to make sense of it because who can understand the mind of a god? Herodotus insisted, and Thucydides, his great successor, insisted absolutely that the world must be humanly intelligible. Intelligible, in other words, in human terms. So that's the first reason why Herodotus is our first historian. Compare, for example, with the people giving historical accounts in the Bible. All the time, God is made responsible for why things happen, not with the Greeks. Second point is that Herodotus was also the first historian because consistently he's saying, do you know, I haven't the remotest idea whether this story that I've heard is true or not. It may be true. It may not be true. I haven't a clue. But look, these are the three versions of it which I was given. I think this one's the best. Make up your own mind. The crucial thing about real historians is they're always sceptical, and Herodotus was among the most sceptical of all of them.
6: Conversely, are there any people that you didn't warm to or think had a negative effect, I suppose?
5: Well, I don't think anyone has a negative effect. There are people whom the Athenians, for example, disapproved of. One of my favourite characters there is a chap called Cleon, who in the, in the 426, or was it 425 BC, Cleon uh, um, became involved in a big debate about how the Athenians should, would, should manage to seize some Spartans. This was the middle of the big war against Sparta, trapped on the island of Sphacteria. And the Athenia, it was around about August, September. The Athenians wanted to get them off very quickly. To hold for ransom purposes and also if they wanted to negotiate a peace treaty, having 400 Spartans including 120 top Spartans as their prisoners would be an invaluable bargaining tool. But they couldn't get them off and Cleon, who'd never held any official position of any sort whatsoever in Athens, he'd never been drawn by lot to do anything at all, stood up in the assembly and said, look, if I was running this show, I'd have those uh, Spartans off in 20 days. Now, there was an Athenian general who'd been a, a, a voted general by the Athenian people in that assembly. And he said, oh, really? He said, all right, then. You get them off in 20 days. And Cleon, we are told, Thucydides, who was there at the time probably, reports this debate in the assembly. Uh, the Athenian people said, come on, Cleon. You know, put your money away your mouth. As you said you could do it, Johnny well get on and do it. And Cleon finally realized he'd have to. And the Athenian people were delighted. Because either they'd get rid of Cleon, whom they didn't really approve of, or they'd get the Spartans off Sphacteria. And at that moment, Nicias, the elected Athenian general, said to the assembly, right, I hereby give up my generalship and hand it over to Cleon. And all the Athenian people said, right on, that we agree. And that was done. It's (laughs) It's rather as if George Osborne reading out the budget was interrupted by someone from the stranger's gallery saying, this is rubbish. I could do better than that. And Osborne said, oh, all right then. Okay, you be chancellor. And all the House of Commons said, fine, okay, right. Then they'll sit be chancellor. And, you know, it just wouldn't happen. That's Athenian democracy for you. And that's, that, that's Cleon, whom a lot of people loathed and found a very, very difficult character. Well, you know. Good for him, I rather approve
6: of that <laughs> um you mentioned at the start that there's some periods of this story that people know about more than others. Are there any kind of periods that you think have been neglected or people should know
5: more about well that that depends on your interest in history. I think the fact is that the classical period which we which we date between uh, 480 BC, the time of the Persian Wars, to the time when Philip of Macedon destroyed democracy in Athens, 322 BC. That that period is just so full of interest that um, you know inevitably one is going to be drawn to it because that when that was when all those in extraordinary developments took place that have had such an influence upon us upon us today, uh, and the later history of Athens is one. As I've said, you know, under the under the cosh of Rome, and Rome did admire the Athenians. They gave them a great deal of freedom and a great deal of scope, but Athens isn't churning out these extraordinary ideas w- which emerged in the fifth and fourth century B.C. As a result, I have to say, of uh, in in the sixth, seventh, and sixth century B.C., as a result of Greeks in the in the East, Greek colonization had landed Greeks all the way along the what we would now call the western coast of uh, of Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, as the Greeks called it. And it was Greek contacts there with Eastern thought that seemed somehow to have generated this extraordinary intellectual excitement among Greeks. And it was they who came to Athens, as it were, really got it all going, all these inventions of philosophy and history and this tremendous intellectual fervor in Athens at, at the time, which generated... You know, people like Plato, uh, Aristotle, probably one of the cleverest people in the world, who, who make the Greek world come alive to us, who who dealing with big issues like crime and punishment and justice, society, families, uh, uh, you know, children, sex. Um, you know, you, you name you name a topic of interest and the Greeks dealt with it, money, property, respect, status, power, politics, death. God's justice, duty, responsibility—you know—it's it, 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 all there. And in a in a pre-Christian world, often making very different assumptions from us. Um, that's what makes it so fascinating. Incidentally, to go into a brief rant, I, I, I get infuriated with with modern theatre. There's a lot of Greek tragedy uh, being put on in these days, and I'm all in favour of that. But it's all patronizingly homogenized to speak to the modern world. You know, they change all the terms of reference to make Antigone into a feminist tract, you know. And you think, what an absolute waste of time and space. The interesting thing about the Greeks is what they thought about things. To turn it into something which is homogenized for the modern world is to lose everything the Greeks were saying. So when you go into a Greek theatre and find they say this is very relevant to the modern political world and we are going to we are going to produce it in modern political terms, just walk straight out. It won't be worth listening to or attending to. Um, can I can I give you a, can I give you a few examples of the sort of of Plato, for example? Some people regard as an old bore, you know. All that philosophy really gets gets one turned off a bit. But let me just read from the sacred script of Eureka, this book I've written, from Holy Writ. Um, here's Plato on on democratic man. One day he gets drunk at a party. The next day, he's sipping water and trying to lose weight. Sometimes he takes exercise, sometimes slobs out without a care in the world, then he takes up philosophy, then he gets involved in community affairs and public speaking, then he joins the army, then he goes into business. His lifestyle has no rhyme or reason, but he thinks it enjoyable, free and enviable, and he never dispenses with it. Fathers are afraid of their sons, and sons neither respect nor stand in awe of their parents. The teacher fears and panders to his pupils, and pupils despise their teachers. The old then adapt themselves to the young, aping them and mixing frivolously with them because they don't wish to be thought strict and disagreeable. I mean, that, that really is quite remarkably interesting, isn't it? Uh, Plato, on, Plato on Laws. Properly educated people, he'll say, will work, if they've got a proper education, will be able to work out things for themselves. If their education is valueless, Plato goes on, they'll spend their whole life making rule after rule and then trying to improve them in the hope that they'll hit upon a successful formula. They'll live like the ill who lack discipline to give up a way of life that is bad for them. All their treatments get them nowhere, yet they live in hope that their next recommended medicine will restore them to health and detest who suggests that until they put an end to their lifestyle, no amount of medicine or surgery will do them any good at all. And he conclu- Plato concludes that it's the mark of a badly governed society to need rafts of legislation about everything. Such lawmakers, he goes on in a wonderful image, quote, are unaware of the fact that they are slashing away at a kind of hydra. You remember the hydra, the many-headed monster which grew two heads for everyone chopped off. Now that, you know, that speaks, that speaks to the modern world. And you find that across classical literature that the the big difficulties come with ancient literature. Um, When they're dealing with Technological subjects, because of course they they didn't have technology, they they didn't have the means to look below the level of perception. So all they could do to understand the world was to use their eyes and their brains. And intellectual Greeks sat back, you know, with a large cigar and a bottle of scotch, looked around them, and tried to draw inferences from what they saw. Well, they got it hopelessly wrong. Of course they did. You know, the idea that health depended on the balance of the moistures, the liquids within your body, the balance of blood, phlegm, yellow bile and black bile, you know, is, is drivel. But, you know, how, why on earth did they think that? How on earth did they reach those conclusions? So the technological stuff is, is very, very difficult indeed. Sometimes, however, They got the technology absolutely right. For example, in the 5th century BC, Greeks invented atomism. They invented atomic theory. They came up with the idea that the whole world consisted of minute atoms, that's a Greek word, meaning something that can't be split or something that can't be broken, below the level of perception that changed, coagulated, split apart in different textures and thicknesses and weights and so on. And that generated the whole world around us. And that was a theory which Aristotle, the brilliant Aristotle, knew, but he rejected Uh, bafflingly. That theory was picked up by the Roman poet Lucretius, who wrote about the way in which atomic theory explained the whole world. Everything from sex to eyesight to thunderstorms to earthquakes, it explained everything. And then that text was lost. Aristotle's idea that the whole world really was made up of earth, air, fire, and water, an absurd idea, um, ran the roost for, what, 1,500 years? And then that text of Lucretius was rediscovered in the 15th century. And scientists, who were now developing technological instruments to see below the level of perception or to see long distances, began to realize this earth, air and fire, water stuff was all tosh. And enter the manuscript of Lucretius's on the nature of the universe, describing atomism. And their eyes were opened. And that is how atomic theory came to be. That uh, thanks to the 5th century atomists and Lucretius's poem, atomism was, was seen to be the way to describe the world from the 16th century onwards. And, uh, you know, that's an example of the Greeks getting things thing right, but purely by accident. But it's the technology which is, which is really difficult to get your head around. If you
6: could somehow travel back in time to this period, what question would you ask of the ancient Greeks?
5: Half. Ah. Yes, I, I always. Uh, yes, fine. I always get slightly irritated when great celebrities are asked. You know, if you are on a flight from London to New York, who would you like to sit through, sit beside? In the whole of history, and they say, Ah, Newton, or 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 Jesus, or 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 Don, Einstein, or someone. And you think, Well, you might like to talk to them, but would know, <laughs> they really want? Do they really want to talk to you? You know. So the answer is probably no. But anyway, so I, I would like to write a letter to Homer and he can answer it. I, I would love to know whether Homer composed the Iliad and the Odyssey, two great, two great epics, the first epics and first works of Western literature, 7th century BC. Uh, each would take between 20 and 30 hours to recite. They were recited, they weren't written down. Did Homer write them down? Did he just recite them? If he just recited them, what relation is our text? Bear to his recitation. Who did he recite them to? I mean, twenty, thirty hours. I mean, and you know, what was his audience like? So there's a whole load of questions I'd like to pose to Homer, and I'd also like to ask the great Aristotle, was one of the cleverest men who ever lived. I mean, he invented, invented biology. I, I mean, here was a man who dissected animals, examined them carefully, drew physiological conclusions from them checked out and watched emerging patterns of shape between different species uh, and then drew conclusions about the relationships between them. You know, he, he invents the idea of species. And uh, Darwin was a great uh, fan of Aristotle. I mean, an outstandingly brilliant man. As well as inventing biology, he invented logic as well, invented the rules of logic. Um, but here was a man who thought the basic substances were earth, air, fire, and water. And it baffles me that someone like Aristotle couldn't think of a way of testing whether it's true or not. But as we know, the scientific method of testing hypotheses and testing them by repeated experiment was something invented in the 16th century. It just baffles me that that, that Aristotle never got there. So I'd like to ask him questions about that, if I could understand the answer so he's a brilliant man <laughs> mm, yes
6: um, and finally if you could leave readers of this book with a view perhaps a slightly changed view
5: of this period what would it be I think I think yes it's a very good question um, I, I, I think I, the first thing I'd say is that um, I have talked and this is our fault blithely about Greeks but the Greeks were not one person one people the Greeks lived in city-states, Athens, Corinth, Thebes, each city-state with its own laws, its own money, its own customs, its own habits, its own dialect, uh, completely independent-minded people. Um, and uh, this is something which I think is uh, people must understand. When we talk about Greeks, normally we just mean Athenians. Um, but, you know, the, the Greek achievement is spread all over the uh, all over the Mediterranean uh, at different stages of Greek history. So one should really start making distinctions, I think. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that we talk blithely about the Athenian achievement. As I've said, that was driven initially by Greeks on the east coast of, of the west coast of uh, Asia Minor in contact with Easterners, with near-Eastern culture. That's very important. I think also I'd say that the most important thing is, well, a very important thing is not to regard myths as sacred texts. Uh, they're just stories about gods and heroes that were significant for Greeks. There were no such things as sacred scriptures uh, as our Bible or, or the Koran, for example. Uh, they didn't have them. Religion was a matter of carrying out age-old rituals. Sometimes myths explained those rituals, but they, they did no more than that. The job of priests was not to preach, was not to talk about sin, right, wrong, morality or human rights. It was to be in charge of ritual and make certain the rituals were carried out properly. That is Greek religion for you. Uh, uh, myths are, 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 are in no sense a sacred text. I think finally, what I'd like to say about the Greeks is that the great feature of ancient Greek thought is its independence. Greek society was not controlled by priests. The Greeks acknowledged gods, they worshipped gods through ritual, but they demanded the world be humanly understandable. That is the great Greek breakthrough, humanly comprehensible, driven by what's between your ears, by your brain, by your powers of rational thought. And that's so important. If Greeks or someone hadn't done that, we'd still be in a situation where we go to the doctor and we say, Doc, look, I've got this terrible pain in my little finger. And the doctor would say, sorry, Peter, I can't do anything about that. That's a divine disease. Now, that's what Greeks would not have. The world is humanly intelligible. And that is the great Greek breakthrough. That was Peter Jones.
4: Eureka, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About the Ancient Greeks But Were Afraid to Ask is out now published by Atlantic Books. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we will be talking about Shakespeare and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And in the meantime, please do take the chance to vote in our poll at historyextra.com forward slash historyhot100. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.